My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. My guest on this episode can boast a best-selling novel and a Hollywood film based on the events of his life. Nico Walker grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and joined the U.S. Army age 19 to serve in Iraq as a medic. He returned with severe PTSD, leading to an opioid addiction. To fund his habit and distract him from his mental health problems, Nico began robbing banks. He was good at it. After 10 successful heists, he was arrested and sentenced to 11 years in prison, where he wrote the critically acclaimed novel, Cherry. It tells a bleak, semi-autobiographical story of war and addiction, which caught the attentions of award-winning filmmakers Anthony and Joe Russo. Their adaptation of Cherry, starring Tom Holland, is out now on Apple TV+. Before my interview with Nico, here's a clip from the movie to give you a taste. I have this noise in my head. It'll stop. One day it'll go quiet. I don't imagine that anyone goes in for a robbery if they're not in some kind of desperation. I've been at this a while now, and it's no secret what my face looks like. Get on the ground! One thing about robbing banks is you're mostly robbing women, so the last thing you want to be is rude. Ma'am, it's nothing personal. Do you know what I'd like to know, Nico, really, is what made you feel like you could write that book, you know? Because obviously you were in... You were in prison at the time, and what made you feel like that was something you wanted to do? The way the book came about was there had been a reporter who had come to the prison to talk to me. He was interested in the story of how I got in the prison, mainly in the angle that I, that I was a veteran of the Iraq War and then mm-hmm. had gotten out of the Army, became addicted to heroin, and then gone on to uh, rob a few banks to support my heroin habit. The article had gotten some traction. It had been printed on BuzzFeed. And a man named Matthew Johnson had read the article. He was the part owner of a small publishing house in New York called Tyrant Books. And they had just had a little bit of success with a book that they had printed about an Iraq veteran written by someone who was not an Iraq veteran. He had asked me a few questions about what prison was like and said that he had had just some sort of personal curiosity, I suppose, about instances of uh, people who had been in wars going on to become criminals. So I wrote him back and uh, he, I guess he liked my letter or something, the way I wrote it. Anyway, he sent me some books. He asked me to tell me what, tell him what I thought of them. Then... uh, you know, he he come to me with his. Uh, he he eventually wrote wrote me about uh, trying to write my story, and uh, he would print it as a book and uh, try and sell it. I told him no. You know, I didn't want to do it. I, a novel just kind of seemed uh, seemed like a lot more pages than I'd have been. Me, you know, I didn't I didn't know I would have that much to say. I even knew a friend back home who wanted to be a writer. I said maybe talk to this guy. You know, he was like no. No, I don't want to do that. I, you know, I want to. I want you to try it. So, it uh, it was kind of fortunate the way it worked out. Though it was kind of one of these things where the stars align. I guess I was working in the education department of the prison, and uh, I was really in the habit of reading a lot. It was how I passed my time. And when I when I first got to the prison after getting out of the, out of the regional jail and after I'd been sentenced and moving on to prison, when I got to the prison, I, I wanted to get a job. So the thing that I was working on was I was teaching uh, the writing part of the test to the students in the GED program. The GED is like the secondary school equivalency uh, test in the United States. 
And as I had to do that, I had to really know what I know what I was talking about, or else I'd look like a jerk trying to explain it to other people. So, you know, as part of the job, I just really learned grammar very well. I learned punctuation very well. So it just yeah. so happened that at this time that I was doing this, this guy, he's coming to me about writing this book, and he eventually talked me into it. And I said, I said to him, I, I said, I, I couldn't, I wasn't going to put down what, what really happened because there were just a, n- a number of reasons that I couldn't do that. So I came to this sort of compromise with him. I mean, he, he never wanted me to write a novel. He wanted me to write a memoir. I said I wasn't going to do it. If, if I if I were going to do it, I was going to was going to write it as fiction. He said, "Well, if you're going to do that, it has to be good." You know what, though, Nico, it's it's amazing because. I work in the prisons and, and I've worked with um, a lot of uh, ex-cons and cons. And whenever I go in the prison, literally every single day I go into the prison, someone goes, there's a film in my story, bruv. There's a story here, you know, I've, if I could just write it down. And they, they underestimate the discipline and the sheer graft and hours that it takes in order to to articulate and commit those words to page, you know. And a lot of a lot of the people I've spoken to have tried to write their story down. And, I mean, the discipline it must have taken you, Nikon, and that's really what I was interested in is, yeah. is how you managed to, with the life and the craziness of your life, manage to think, well, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to commit to it because I know that's, that's, you know, that's years and years of work. Yeah, um, that's true. It took me four years to write the book. Mm-hmm. and. Probably the first year and a half of that was just figuring out at all how to do it. There are a few problems. The the first one being that 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 I had never attempted anything like it before. The second the second being uh maybe that these things were difficult to write about. For me, sure. none of it was any was anything that I was proud of. And I was very reluctant to kinda talk about the things that I talked about. Just because to me, these things were, you know, a point of embarrassment, really. The decision that I made, you know, to stick with it, it came down to I had had a lot of opportunities. I had been lucky in life. I had been fortunate. You know, I I didn't come from any sort of difficult circumstances. Anything, anything that was difficult about my life, most of the time, it was, it was something that I had done to myself. Mm-hmm. And knowing that I I had I had messed up so many opportunities in my life, when I was given one last opportunity, you know, I'd come to terms with myself. I, I had recognized myself, my own shortcomings. I had been so honest with myself about how much I was responsible for for where I had ended up that I was just determined that I was not going to let another opportunity get away from me. As long as that opportunity was still there, I was going to do whatever it took to take advantage of it and to realize uh, what good could come out of it. Well, amazing good that has come out of it, Nico. I mean, I was on the train uh, into town the day before yesterday and I'm sitting there and it's a geezer opposite me and he's reading Cherry and I wanted to run up to him and go, bruv, I'm about to speak to Nico. <laughs> but it was amazing to see that, you know. I mean, it's it's a known book. People know it and obviously... Um, I'm an actor in my in my day job, and everyone knew about the film and about what, which we'll get into later on. But it's an amazing start, mate, isn't it? It's an amazing restart, rather. What I'd like to talk to you about now, Nico, if it's all right, is is some of the content of the book. And uh, for me, 
talking about addiction and, and uh, incarceration. And what's interesting for me is the, the depressing truth that uh, the army in England, and I'm, a, I'm assuming in America, I'd like to talk about that, but, uh, you know, that it's a, it's a route for working class men. You know, they recruit, like in Sherry, like, like you talk about that character, recruit where bored and disaffected youth loiter, you know, like almost the same places you'll find a drug dealer, you'll find someone recruiting for the army because it's the same audience, right? Sure. There's a lot of truth in that. Where I was living, uh, when I enlisted, Cleveland, Ohio, economically, it was, it was one of the worst, uh, worst places in the country. I think the, uh, the year I enlisted or the year before I enlisted, it was actually, uh, it was actually ranked as the poorest major city in America. Wow. And there, as, as far as work goes, I mean, you could make maybe $8 an hour, someone like me. I never, I never really liked school. I never really, really fit in at school, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, there, 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 are two, there are two facets of what, what it kind of promised me, I think. And the one was, like you said, um, if you're working for just a wage, there's never any money left at the end of the week. And it, it just seems kind of hopeless, like you're spinning your tires. And, uh, and then you don't really have much self-respect either. You know, I, you know, working in restaurants, you know, you're working nights. If you're working in the kitchen like I was working in the kitchen. You're not, you're not making very much money. You're 18, you're 19 years old. You're kind of at that transition from being a kid to being a man. And you just want to hurry up and be a man already. And I don't know if it's still the case. I don't know if kids still believe in this. But at the time, there was a little bit of an idea that was held popularly among people that... Enlisting in the army, going through basic training, you know, as, as ridiculous as it sounds, you know, that nine week basic training course and then whatever specialty training, you know, you'll go from being a kid to being a man after that. And- Nico, you, I mean, it's interesting because you said when you wrote the book, you were writing about stuff you weren't proud of. But what I'm hearing from you and what I, what I know from my own experience and, and from talking to other people is that the, the army promises you a pride a, pl- a place, a family, a purpose, something bigger than you, you know, all that stuff. And then you got out to uh, Iraq and you realized that, I think you say in the book that you refer to yourself as a scarecrow, you know, that you were just there uh, in the middle of a metaphorical field. That, that must be agony to realize, because you must be amazing. It must be amazing to train as a soldier and to feel that you're going to go somewhere and do something. And then you get there and you realize, you know, like you explain really, really articulately in the book that there is no purpose for you to be there. And you might even be instigating more trouble than you're, than you're solving. Certainly. Yeah, I think um, all of us going into basic training, we had this idea that, you know, we go in and then nine weeks later, we're going to come out. We're going to be like Jean-Claude Van Damme or something, you know, <laughs> and this is this is not the case. You know, nine, nine, nine weeks is not is not enough time for that. And, uh, you know, they sell you on that, though. And then uh, to a certain extent, they do they do allow you to have a family. I mean, mm-hmm. you, can have, you can have you can support a wife, you can support kids. You know, you'll have the you'll have the TRICARE, the health insurance. You know, you, if you have a family, they'll give you a housing allowance sort of adjusted to the cost of living of wherever you're stationed. The thing they don't put too much emphasis on is that you aren't going to be around to see them. You're going to be gone all the time. The unit that I was with, you know, we did it. We did it. We were gone a year. And then uh, 
I had gotten out of the army. Uh, and then 10 months later, after my unit had got back, 10 months after that, they went again and they stayed for, I think, 15 months that time. I wonder how many families survived that. Not many. Not many. Everybody was getting divorced. Everybody, everybody was losing their family. Very rare, very rare that, uh, that a family would stay together, that a marriage would stay together through that, even through the first deployment. The... And Nico, you know, Nico, you would, I mean, obviously you'd lived a life before you joined the army and I'm presuming, um, and I don't know this because it's difficult when you read your book because you presume it's you and I know it isn't, but um, you'd sort of dabbled in drugs before that. But once the character, I'm not saying you, but once the character gets out to uh, Iraq, that it seemed pretty epidemic, the drug taking in the army. Is that true? Epidemic? I don't know. No, epidemic's too strong. Yeah, epidemic, I don't know. But uh, a lot of the kids were, you know, were the same as me. You know, they had sold, you know, they had sold drugs. They, you know, they had been kind of small drug dealers in high school and after high school. You know, these are the, because these are the type of people, you know, if they weren't, you know, if they weren't partying, if they weren't, you know, more worried about, for lack of a better word, hustling, mm-hmm. spending all the time it takes to do that. They might have done something else in the in the civilian world. Might have done something more productive. It certainly wasn't a lack of ability on their part. It certainly wasn't a lack of intelligence on their part that you know that led them to settle for the army infantry. Um, we say opportunity, right? I'd say opportunity. Yeah, I would say opportunity. Yeah, and then it's well, I mean, yeah, and just environment and in, in the way your 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 life kind of is shaped. Um, it, it shapes itself on its own, you know. I know for me, I didn't have to sell drugs, you know. I wasn't, my, you know, my my family was always able to take care of itself, and uh, you know, we're doing better and better all the time. So I didn't have any sort of obligation to my house to go out and make money, as some people do. And, and when you go to opportunity, I mean, that that is often the case. Or they, you know, or they come, you know, or they come from families where you know their their, their parents are hustling or. You know, their brothers are hustling or their brothers are in a gang um, and, you know, their older brothers in a gang. So either they're going to be in the gang or they're going to get out of town and, and they'll go to the military as a way of kind of avoiding that saving face. For me, uh, I don't know, I suppose I was always a, a shy kid. I moved around a lot when I was a kid. I never really stayed one place longer than two years when I was younger. We had to move around a lot. And. As that was the case, it was hard for me to fit in places because I'd always be kind of picking up in the middle. You know, all the kids yeah. know each other from when they're little. I don't know these people. And uh, when I got into drugs, the thing about it was the drug people were nice people. The drug people were my friends. The drug people, mm-hmm. the drug people would, you know, treat me as an equal. Usually they were older people. So, you know, to be seen as an equal by older people. Nico, I think you see that in the book as well. I think uh, the character in the book, you can see there's a compassion and a comradeship between, uh, It was that was really interesting for me, that comradeship. I mean, obviously they, they rip each other off a bit, but you can see there's a brotherhood amongst the drug takers and the junkies. And that, that's a family of sorts, right? Certainly. <clears throat> that's how you get into it. That's why you don't see it as being a negative thing. Because, uh, again, you know... Uh, that not only not only do they have respect and understanding for you, but they'll help you out. You know, I remember, uh, you know, a friend of mine. I don't know, he's no longer with us. He used to uh, he would front me things, 
and I would sell these things, you know, and I, and and it went well for me. And, uh, you know, I would have some money, um, more money than you could usually expect to see, uh, in like a teenager's pocket sometimes because of that. And, uh, that was a good thing for me. I thought at the time and I didn't see anything wrong with it. Of course we were just dealing with, you know, things like marijuana and, and LSD really mainly. And so we weren't talking about heroin or anything where anybody's going to die. Isn't that the way it was in the army? I was going to ask you that because we just spoke to Tony Adams, who's a very famous soccer player um, who was an alcoholic. He is amazing and he's a, a hero in, in our country. He's a great sportsman. But he was drinking and some of the matches he didn't remember because he was drunk, uh-huh. but he played brilliantly. But he was saying, because I asked him about things that were heavier than booze or pills or speed or you know a bit of smoke. And there was nothing heavy because obviously you couldn't do what you had to do if you were taking heavier drugs. And was that the case in Iraq? It was all bits and bobs because obviously if you were injecting heroin, you'd be found out pretty quick, right? Um, actually, they weren't, they weren't drug testing us in Iraq. Um, uh-huh. I don't know, probably because they, they needed all of us that they had. And they, yeah. they couldn't afford yeah. to be kicking anybody out because we were, we were pretty short-staffed as it, were, as it was. In the, in the book, the main character is doing Oxycontin, in Iraq and uh seems like he's getting getting high a little bit more than he is and certainly I mean there were there were people who were who were doing that I was not doing that I think I maybe I think I smoked weed like once while I was there I think okay you know and uh and maybe had a shot of whiskey once or twice and and that was it because for me as a medic being where I am there was no way that I could justify to myself getting really messed up, yeah. you know, getting really inebriated because any moment someone else's life would maybe hang in the balance on what I, what I was either able or unable to do for them. And yeah. it just, it was a responsibility that I took very seriously and I wasn't, I wasn't going to be in a situation where uh, I let somebody down because of that. There was an article. There was an article, Nico, in um, the British newspaper, The Guardian, which is a sort of respected newspaper, yeah. saying that we do do uh, random drug testing in the UK on the soldiers, and there were uh, 660 soldiers have tested positive this year, which is basically a, a whole battalion of soldiers that have tested positive and have been. Uh, thrown out the army which is going to bring me on to your return to home but it's a question of whether they're dealing with some form of ptsd or whether they're doing it because like all young people they like to get high and for you you know when you when you came out the army and you came home and excuse my ignorance because i don't know and i and i do get confused between you and the book but how how quick did you end up um taking heroin how quick was that transition to to doing that from the end of the army days uh it happened pretty quickly and why was that well, when I when I had signed up, part of the reason I had signed up was to get away from all that. And mm-hmm. like I said, I, okay. I wanted to grow up. I wanted to be a man, whatever I thought a man was supposed to be. And um, my intent at the time was to start a family. And for one reason or another, that 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 didn't end up happening. I'd gotten divorced, so as that was kind of like this idea that I had that that was going to be what I was doing. I kind of had this, <laughs> this weird fantasy of just sort of, you know, being a regular guy, you know, working, going to school, doing the right thing. And, uh, I would have that as a sort of, uh, 
reason to live, you know? And Like a, tem- a template for a life. Yeah, and then uh, when that was gone, there, there wasn't anything really holding me back at that point. So when I did go home, I went straight, straight to my old friends. And my old yeah. friends, they had moved, they had moved on from kind of the, kind of the basic, you know, weed, mushrooms, kind of lighthearted things, gone in sort of a darker direction, you know, doing coke, doing oxycotton, and drugs were more expensive. They were stronger. They were more addictive. And so I just go to see my friends. This is what they're doing. As far as I knew, you know, this was just kind of what we did. And I had good memories of, you know, hanging out and and getting high with with them back in the day. And so I gravitated back towards that and changed from something that something that you wanted to do to something that you needed to do. Mm-hmm. You get strung out on on these pills. And then you don't you don't feel well when you don't have them. And then you got to think, well, how am I going to afford these? So the oxycotton is a little more expensive. But you say to yourself, well, heroin's a little cheaper, you know. I'll just go get some heroin. I'll snort that instead of snorting the oxycotton. Yeah. I'll save a lot of money that way. And then what ends up happening is you say to yourself, well, this heroin, this is pretty expensive. I'm kind of uh, kind of wasting it, snorting it. If I just started shooting it, think of all the money I would save. <laughs> I don't know if that's how it goes for everybody, but that was kind of how it went for me. Before I knew it, shooting it more and more, needed more and more to just to be right. You know, I'd go, I'd be going to this job. You know, I'd make fifty dollars working the whole night, and uh, I'd be spending about eighty-five percent of that on. <laughs> on dope most of the time, you know, and then, uh, and then I would have, you know, enough money left over in the morning to buy a sandwich or something before I went to work again. And, uh, it was very depressing and things just kind of steadily got worse. Every now and then I would try and and break out of the cycle. And then, uh, you know, I remember, uh, you know, trying to go to school and, making these big kind of commitments to try to get myself to behave. And it would go well at first because my habit still, after, you know, a year or so, it really wasn't that serious. I mean, I, I just, I guess I just couldn't really afford for it to be that serious. Yeah. I couldn't afford the, you know, the quantities of drugs it would take to really go into some serious withdrawal. So I was able to you know, try and show up and then... uh you know, make things go right. And I would do a little bit, you know, I'd do well for a little while and then I would kind of relax. And then, you know, when I started getting these checks for the for the Pell Grants and the GI Bill and stuff, you know, it was burning a hole in my pocket, as it were. Then uh, I had a little, you know, I had a little bit of resources to really fuck up. So fast forwarding, Nico, through a you know a life of crime, which you talk about, did you go into prison uh, addicted? I mean, did you straighten out in prison? What were the what was the help for you there? Was there help there for you? Were the sober wings in prison in America? I, I have no idea. No, there, there are there are no sober wings. The way I got sober, you know, I uh, I went to jail and I didn't have any money. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I got sick. I got real sick. I was sick for months. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. 
was, I lost 30 pounds in a month. I could barely keep any food down. I mean, I didn't die, so I must have kept some of it down. But when I got locked up, I went to the hospital first. I'd run from the police, and I'd broken, uh, I'd broken my back doing that. And uh, <laughs> I was in a wheelchair when I first got, got to jail, oh, just looking like God. shit, you know? And I mean, it just, uh, it wasn't a good stance. Not, not that there's anything wrong with being in a wheelchair, but I mean. No, but it wasn't you at your strongest. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially, yeah exactly. especially when you're not used to being in a wheelchair. Yeah. And uh, just real weak, man. I couldn't do anything for myself. My parents. And who helped you? Know, you? Who well, helped uh, you? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's like my parents, you know, they, they even, uh, yeah. I mean, they even went out and, and got a lawyer for me, you know, and then, uh, when I was in jail and, and when I went on to prison, you know, these, you know, up until I started, you know, making money from the writing thing, from the book thing, you know, you know, my parents were sending me money, right? When I was mm -hmm. in prison. So here I am, right? Um, uh, shit, you know, I'm in my late twenties. Then I turned 30. Then I'm in my early thirties, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, your parents got to send you money while you're in prison, you know? So I'm not going to take this money and spend this money on getting high. You know, they're sending me money for food from the commissary. They're sending me money for, you know, soap, underwear, things like this. I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to take this money of theirs and uh, spend it on some shit like that, you know? Well, you know, Nico, talking to you, you know, when you were when you were in the army, you refused. You didn't get high because of your. There was a, a morality to you that stopped you doing that because of the ramifications of what would happen if you were needed to help someone and you were high. And when you got sent money in prison, you didn't use it to buy anything that you shouldn't buy because it, the money didn't belong to you. I mean, like the character in the book, you're inherently a decent man and a, and a likable guy, and that's a hard. You know, I mean, I'm not. I'm not applauding you and the life you led but i've got to say it's impressive man that you you've you've got quite a high moral stance even when you're in the throes of terrible addiction you know where a lot of people you know they steal the wedding ring off their mother in order to in order to get high you know it's it's impre it's impressive and interesting to hear you speak uh yeah i appreciate that you know uh i guess maybe sometimes we have our good days you know sometimes we don't do so yeah. well you know um uh, I know I robbed a pregnant lady once. I'm not really proud of that. No, I know. I didn't know like you was say, pregnant. It was but... bad days too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was a bank teller and the counters are pretty high. You know, you, yeah. I, I couldn't see. I didn't know, but it doesn't make it less true. And No, uh, it doesn't. You know, just having to, uh, fuck, having to face some stuff like that. If that can't remind you of reasons to try and keep yourself together, I don't imagine there's much that would so so nico in the prison though i mean that you had your journey there but you know in the uk you were talked to by the people from the forward trust about this interview and we have like a real structure about people who want to get sober in prison you know and they just have to reach their hand out and those people are there but that doesn't exist at all in america so what do people do when they go i mean you just suffered for months on end until basically it seems like until you went through it all and cleared your body and your system of that but you did it alone yeah that's right once you get to prison i mean they have uh they have like a na meeting once a week or something and then they have they have like a drug class that you can take 
Is this is uh, as far as like assisted detox or any sort of you know medical help? You're not going to get that. Amazing. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's pretty heavy, but they got this uh, they got this saying. I guess is whatever. What do they say? They say uh, this is big boy rules. You know, it's one of these things. You know, you didn't give any quarter, you don't expect any. So that's how it goes, and you just deal with it. And how does it feel, Nico, now to be, you know, I mean, obviously, Cherry was a cathartic journey to a degree. And, you know, and how does that feel for you now? Because now, you know, you are a writer. That's what you are. You know, that's how, you know, if you had to write on your passport, if you had to reapply for something, a driving license, and they say occupation, you're, you're a professional, successful writer. How does that feel? And, and where does that take you next? I feel very lucky. There are a lot of people who just have extraordinarily heavy experiences that they carry around with them. And I know that I, I owe the lion's share of my success to blind luck, just having a chance, things lining up, being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people. And uh, it isn't lost on me that there are a lot of people who would trade places with me if they could. Sure. And it isn't just like I could give them my place. It doesn't work like that. I mean, the thing about it, how it affects, you know, how I go about my day to day is I've had this lucky break and I don't want to let go of it, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, writing one book's hard, writing two, that's even harder, but I'm going to, because I, because I have, I have no choice in the matter. I mean, it's, it's the only thing I can do that's remotely remunerative and, uh, I got to make sure that that I stay working all the time and I keep taking it seriously and that I don't just take it for granted and that if I'm doing something, I'm doing it as well as I can, you know, because if I don't, you know, say I just turn something out right now just to get another advance and it isn't what it's supposed to be, there may not be another one after that, mm-hmm. then I'll uh, jack the whole thing off. If I were to do that, that would just... uh that would just be uh, ungrateful. It's a fear of failure as well, isn't it, Nico? This, I mean, I think it's the same with, listen, man, I'm not comparing our lives at all, but I'm an actor. And I know that a lot of actors uh, self-destruct or they ruin their own chances because they fear so much the, the idea of failing. And uh, it's a really difficult thing, mate, to, to um, pursue something which is so highly accredited, you know, like being a writer or being an actor or, you know, and, and the fear of, of falling is, is ever present. Yeah. Well, I think one of the biggest scams, you know, that uh, the more malevolent people who have things use one of the ways they make their ends meet, you know, is by convincing people that there are things that they can't do. There are things that they're just not good enough to do. And it's a, it's a lie. So true. And, the first step is really just to just to understand that you have to take yourself seriously because if you don't take yourself seriously, no one else will. And you have the right to take yourself seriously. It's this kind of thing, you know, we're all supposed to be humble. And that's true. But part of being humble is if you have a chance or or if you have the time to do something, that you that you take advantage of it. You need the luck, you know, you need the luck. It's what you you do with that luck, you know. Everybody's got luck. 
to some extent or another, I would say. I mean, I know there are exceptions. I mean, I know there, I know there are people who are very, very bad off. But no matter what's going on, I mean, any day that you wake up, you're lucky. Your sobriety, I mean, your removal of yourself from that world of, of heroin addiction, is it, how strong are you, mate? Are you fearful of re-addiction? Are you, are you still vulnerable to that? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, I'm on supervised release right now. So if I get too comfortable, I, I'll go right back to jail. That would be foolish. And then after that's gone, one of the things that I worry about most is just waking up one day and being broke again. And you hear about all sorts of people who had all kinds of money and they found their way back to being broke. You yeah. never close that gate behind you. That gate is always open. You know, yeah. it's tough. Yeah. And uh, and then another thing is just, um, again, it comes back to, uh, will I be able to do what I need to do to keep working? And, uh, you know, if I get super, super far out there on dope, I'm not going to have the time and energy that I, that I'm going to need to do what I have to do. It's interesting, Nico, isn't it, that, uh, uh, you know, a modicum of success, um, which you've got much more than, but a modicum of success and recognition should have released you maybe from the pressures of, you know, should have given you that self-respect. But actually it's a weight, isn't it? It's a, it's a burden to a degree. I mean, I could never say it was a burden. I mean, my job is to wake up in the morning and, you know, get out of bed and walk 10 feet to the, Laptop. To the table and, and sit down and, and write. You know, I'm not out there, you know, breaking my back for anybody. True. You've and, done that already. <laughs> yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. Done it how do you feel about how do you feel about the film, Nico? <laughs> what do you what are your fears of that? Exciting or, or, or what? Tell me what you think. Well, I mean it's an it's an unknown. They always change the film around from what the book is. I imagine that the people who are doing it though. I imagine that they take what they do as seriously as I do. They've all been very successful. So, you know, surely they take what they do seriously. I was kind of chuffed when I heard they came from Cleveland, though. I, I know that probably doesn't make any difference, but it kind of reassured me that they might look after your story, you know, because I know that they've got a, a real affection to that city. Well, not affection, but, yeah. you know, a history there. You know, what's interesting is uh, Joe Russo and I, we both worked at the same restaurant. La Dolce I knew Luna, that. Yeah, in, in Little Italy. Happy. He's a couple of years older than you, right? Um, yeah, I think he's probably, what, 10 years older than me, maybe? Isn't that funny? Yeah. What was the restaurant? What was the restaurant? La Dolce Vita. La Dolce Vita. Oh. That, isn't that funny? It's called that? Yeah, right? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, yeah, we know. We, we knew some of the same people. And uh, when I was talking about somebody in the book, sometimes he knew, knew who I was talking about. He saw through the... Uh, pseudonyms. The pseudonyms, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it was a trip. But, um, well, listen, Nico, not, not yeah. to put any more pressure on you, but I can't tell you, it's, it's such a joy to talk to you and I can't wait to see what you come out with next. I mean, you take your time, there's no pressure, but uh, for me, who, who's, who have started this career of talking to people who've, who are at the bottom of the barrel, who no one gives a chance to, who are fundamentally thought of as finished, you know, to see you flip that and do what you've done, it makes me so happy. It's good talking to you as well. I was thinking about it, you know, before before we were coming into this. I I used to watch some of your films when I was younger, you know. I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna be like, I was gonna be like, it's a deal, it's a steal. 
It's the sale of the fucking century. Fuck it, Nick. I think I'll keep it. <laughs> oh, man, that's so good to hear you say that. Someone asked me to say that every day, and I don't think anyone's done it as well as you. <laughs> if you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and look out for future episodes. Thank <laughs> you.